Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Freelance garden historian Russell Bowes looks at the history of gardening, giving a virtual tour of some of the great art galleries of the world. Can you hear me in the cheap seats at the back? Yes. Um, so the, the subject of my talk this evening is the painted garden, which is basically um, a whistle-stop look at the history of gardening as it has been depicted in works of fine art through the centuries. Um, so we have about 4,500 years of um, decorative cultivation to look at in 45 minutes. So we have to be necessarily brief, I'm afraid. Um, however, um, there is one question that I would like to ask at the beginning, um, and that is, why would you paint a garden? Silence from the floor. <laughs> Do anybody care to? Lady in the middle? Colour. Colour, yes. So you, what you are saying is that you are painting a garden because of its decorative capabilities, yes? Um, yes, yes, that's one reason. Oh, oh, suddenly a forest of hands over there. Exactly. Gardening is um, a performing art. It is just like opera and ballet um, and theatre in that um, it is always changing. Um, I don't know whether people here have heard, I'm sure you have, of the National Garden Scheme run under the Yellow Book um, by which you can go and poke around other people's gardens um, on payment of a small fee. I am a great poker around of other people's gardens, um, but I don't know about you, I invariably you know, get to the garden on the day it's open, pay my money at the gate, and the person whose garden it is says, oh, if only you'd been here last week. Um, because, you know, it's always the day after the worst gales in South East England have flattened the prize camellias or something like that. So, yes, a garden is ephemeral, um, definitely, and many Many people have actually wanted to um, capture their gardens um, at their, their point of greatest glory. Many people have also wanted to capture a garden that they do not possess themselves, either because they live in a, live in a different time era or they want to record something which has disappeared many centuries before. Um, any, any other reasons why one might paint a garden? There was at least one more hand up. I do know that. Um, well, partially to record, partially as um, you know, an exercise in um, in preserving the past, or you know, capturing something that you want but cannot have. Um, a lot of the paintings we will look at this evening are contemporary with the gardens that they actually portray, but some of them were painted at a considerable remove of time. Um, one particular garden, um, which depicts a Roman garden, was actually painted um, in the 1870s. So painting a garden at a remove of time is a way of you know, capturing a past that never was, um, as you can also have... Um, um, a garden as a decorative item as well. So there are, there are many reasons why, and that's just to kind of touch on, um, on, on a couple of the reasons why I put this talk together. Um, I think we can do really no better than to look at the first slide and start off. Um, for those of you who are joining us by podcast, what we are looking at is the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, painted by Lucas Cranach in 1425. Um, the first garden in classical Western literature, 
the Garden of Eden, where the fall of man took place. And, um, and God created a garden in Eden, which is in the east, and there he put the man and woman that he had created to take care of the, flu- the fruits and the flowers thereof. So despite what you may have heard, garden caretaking is actually the world's oldest profession. Um, the, the Garden of Eden um, gets a very early mention in the book of Genesis. I think it's about chapter 14. Um, so it's r- almost right at the beginning of the Bible stories. Um, the Bible is very non-specific about Eden. It doesn't actually tell us an awful lot about where it is, what it looks like, or indeed what we might find in it. All we know is that Eden was actually a garden surrounded by a high wall. Um, the Persian word paradisios translates into English as a space enclosed by a wall. And paradise is something that we think of as being a green and verdant space um, to which we go at the end of our lives. All the major religions of the world have paradise as a garden at the end of our lives. Um, As I said, the the Bible is very non-specific about the Garden of Eden, apart from the wall. There is also a fountain of life, and there is also a particular plant which grows right in the middle of the garden. And there is only one specimen of this plant The Bible is very clear on that, and that is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, usually represented in Western art and in Western literature as an apple tree, but here we hit a problem. Um, Botanically, maybe. There is no trace or ever found of the Garden of Eden. Biblical scholars think that if the garden did exist, it would be somewhere um, in the region of the Sudan, that we now call the Sudan, very hot, very dry area of the world, insufficient rainfall and insufficient dewfall to actually bring a tree such as the apple to full um, fruit-bearing capabilities. Um, And as every good gardener will tell you, if you want apples on your tree, you actually need two apple trees, um, roughly within bumblebee flying distance, which is about three-quarters of a mile, because you need the pollen from one tree to fertilise the flowers on the other. God didn't have these awful self-fertile varieties that we have these days. Um, but there, the, the Bible is very specific, only one tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden. So for that reason, it can't possibly have been an apple tree, more likely to have been something like a fig or perhaps even a pomegranate. But if you think of your um, Greek mythology, the pomegranate, the fruit of the underworld, Hades, Persephone, it had all that kind of emotional baggage with it. The Bible writers obviously thought, well, we can't have our, uh, our sacred plant associated with the fruit of the underworld we will have to turn it into something with which our readers are more familiar with Um, nobody in medieval Europe knew what a pomegranate was um, so they decided for reasons of um, recognition mainly to turn it into an apple tree Um, it's given the apple rather heavy baggage unfortunately as being the fruit which um, 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 promoted the fall of man um, but more than, more than that, we don't know about the Garden of Eden, um, even though it's the, 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 the start of um, human existence. If you look at this picture, um, the interesting things about it, um, the, the serpent was punished f- um, for tempting Eve with the apple by having all its legs taken away. Um, originally, serpents had legs 
Um, but here the snake is coming out of the tree, has already lost its legs, even though the apple hasn't been bitten yet. Um, neither Adam nor Eve born of woman, but strangely, both of them have navels. I wonder why. Um, also, you have to bear in mind that there, is, um, there are delicate issues around this particular painting about the human body. 1425, um, nobody was supposed to know what the naked human form looked like. Eve has um, done quite well because part of the, the great grapevine has actually kind of swished itself over and covered the unmentionable parts of her anatomy. Poor Adam hasn't done quite so well. Um, One false move, a sneeze perhaps, a step forward, he will find himself impaled on the horns of a dilemma. Um, Not only should he he eat the apple, but where does he actually go as well? Um, So the Garden of Eden, where all the problems began... Um, We come on to the Roman garden. Um, Garden history is very much like a relay race in that at various points in our history, um, the baton of gardening and garden design passes from one culture to another. Um, From the earliest Neolithic people the um, baton of garden history, garden design had passed to the Egyptian people and then to the Greeks, and then all of a sudden it literally exploded when we arrived at the Roman era. Um, for those of you in Podland, this is a hearty welcome by Sir Lawrence Alma Tadema um, in the Ashmolean Museum, I believe. Um, it's also called a hearty welcome, um, and it was painted in 1878 as... Um, a way of settling Sir Lawrence Almatadema's doctor's bill. He had um, a bit of cash flow problems that year, so he actually painted this, um, this, this garden to order at the request of his physician, whose favourite book was Sir Edwin, Edwin Bulwer-Lytton's book, The Fall of Pompeii. Has anybody read The Fall of Pompeii? No, well, you haven't missed much. I can assure you that it is, a, uh, it is a Victorian bodice ripper of the most nauseating sentimentality in which, to um, paraphrase Miss Prism, the good end happily and the bad end unhappily. The good people manage to escape the, the burning city. The bad people stop to pack up their possessions and their money and are actually engulfed by the flames and the smoke as Pompeii erupts. Um, So what we have here is a very Victorian idea of what might constitute a classical Roman garden of the type which was very much in vogue um, um, in the Roman era and especially in the houses of the rich people who lived in the seaside town of um, Pompeii. It shows a peristyle garden um, and peristyle means in the middle of the house. A Roman house was built um, four square with a hollow centre and the garden was in the middle. This meant that um, every room in the house had um, a garden view. It meant that every room in the house was open to the fresh air. And it also meant that the garden was actually in a privileged, secluded place in the middle of the house, away from the prying eyes of the people passing in the street outside. So the garden was protected by the walls of the house. And it shows, as I said, a typical four-square Roman peristyle garden. You might just actually be able to see the figure on the extreme right-hand side is Sir Lawrence himself. This lady here is his second wife, Lady Laura Almatadema, and her two children. Um, Now, it shows a typical garden of the time planted for 
brief amounts of colour um, in the, um, the, the, the Roman summer heat. Um, can anybody tell me what is wrong with it? I hear vague mutterings. I haven't picked up the word sunflowers. Um, the sunflower is a new world plant. The Helianthus species was not brought back into Europe until at least 1510. So the Romans would have been completely unfamiliar with the Helianthus, the sunflower species. So you have to kind of ignore that. Um, one thing you have to do when you are looking at paintings of gardens is be extremely critical about how much you actually take as evidence. Um, the rest of the planting, poppies, roses, palm trees, um, the giant cardoon, um, the vine, all spot on for the period apart from the sunflower group at the back there. The Romans were a conquering nation. They took their gardens with them wherever they went, um, up to um, Chile, northern Europe, down to southern Spain. Um, so if you are a, a keen archaeologist or a visitor of archaeologist sites, um, you will know that this is you know, more or less the standard pattern um, for gardens of the period. The, the baton of gardening, once the, um, once the Roman Empire crumbles in 430 AD, I believe it was, passed very much to another group of travellers, another conquering people, um, the Arabs or the Moors, as they were known in Europe, um, brought their own style of gardens with them to replace those of the fallen Roman Empire. Um, and they created their, um, their gardens to a very specific format. Unfortunately, my memory bank has been completely wiped as to the name and date of this painting. Um, I do know that it's a Victorian, again, a Victorian rendition of one of the gardens of the Alhambra. It's the Generalife Palace in, um, in um, southeastern Spain. The Moors, as I said, took their gardens with them, just like the Romans. Um, but they, they, they created gardens for um, a different purpose. Um, a Moorish garden was a representation of heaven on earth for the Moorish peoples because garden design, rather strangely, is laid out very specifically in the Quran. Um, and the Quran states that a garden must be square, it must be surrounded by walls on either side to keep out the heat of the sun and the drying effects of the rain. Um, it has to be square. There are no curved lines. Um, there are no circular elements in a Moorish garden. Circle represents eternity and perfection, and therefore is the symbol of Allah. It is not for man to recreate the perfection of um, Lord Allah on earth. So everything in a Moorish garden is square in straight lines. Geometry represents um, mankind rather than the, the circle of perfection. So we would have a garden split into four um, by a fountain in the middle with four canals coming out um, to water each part of the garden. If you think back to the Garden of Eden, this is very similar to the layout of um, our own version of paradise in um, Christian literature in that in Eden there was a fountain of life which split into four rivers which watered the four parts of the garden. There are four rivers classically also in the Quran, um, and these are represented by the canals running out from the rills um, in a, a Moorish garden. They represent the, the four liquids of life, wine, honey, purified milk, and water. 
The planting for this, um, this um, scheme is more or less correct for the period. Um, hollyhocks, oleanders, um, plumbagos, some of the, the first red geraniums to come into the country. What we are looking at is one of the viewing pavilions um, at the Generalife Palace. So we move on. Um, as Western civilization began to be more settled, um, gardening very much started to come into its own. Um, that's fine. Um, and what we are looking at here um, is an early 14th century manuscript illustration from um, one of those books of hours, a devotional book of hours, um, which explain what you should be doing at appropriate times of the year. Um, this, I believe, is fairly early on in the year. I think this is April, perhaps, or even March. Um, the, the image is of um, certainly a northern European town, perhaps somewhere like Bruges, or, uh, or Ghent, perhaps, um, bearing in mind the architecture. What we see here is, again, a garden surrounded by a wall. But rather than for um, um, decorative purposes, it is, again, for security. Um, many images of gardens um, use the wall and the locked gate as an image of danger. And this is a very dangerous garden for those people who don't actually know what's growing in it. Um, now, you can see here we have our apothecary um, in his wonderful red robe, because this is his garden. He takes up the majority of the space in the picture. Here's his number two man here. And here we have the, um, the plants, the herbal plants that he will be using, all laid out neatly in a checkerboard fashion, one um, type of plant for each square. Now... It's laid out like that for a number of reasons. At first, it's practical. It's very easy to water and look after a garden, which is laid out in a formal checkerboard fashion, because you can start at this square on the bottom right, and then you can work up this line here, come across and down and across and down. So you're not going to waste time, energy or water wondering which part of the garden you've actually watered because you've done it in straight lines. Plants are being grown in this kind of checkerboard fashion as well for security measures. Now, if it's pouring with rain, somebody's asking for a herbal remedy, you don't actually want to have to go out in the garden in the rain, get yourself wet. You send somebody else. You send one of your uneducated garden helpers. Now, they don't need to know what the name of the plant is that you want. They don't need to know what you're going to use it for. They don't need to know what combination of, of herbs you're going to use it in or, or, or exactly what it looks like. All they need to know is what square it's being grown in. For reasons of, of, of identification um, by uneducated people, you can direct people to a particular square in this format. They don't need to know what the plant is called. As I said, they don't need to know what you want it for. All they need to know is which square to pick it from. Because, bear in mind, some of these plants can be dangerous, um, perhaps on their own, certainly in combination. Um, the uneducated people, who are the gardening staff, wouldn't actually have um, the herbalist knowledge, the horticultural specialist knowledge, to understand what these plants were for. 
All they need to know is how to look after them and where to pick them from in case of emergency. Interesting that um, down in the the bottom right-hand corner here we have the first appearance of women in garden art. The weeding woman paid, you know, perhaps um, a a penny a day to get down on her hands and knees in the mud and pick the weeds from the beds with her far more nimble fingers than um, the men would be able to. Apart from that, there would be very specific times that women would not be allowed into the garden. It was said that a woman who was at the the top of her menstrual cycle was instant death to any plant that she she, um, she approached. So women were only allowed in under specific circumstances for for about three, three and a half weeks per month. We move on. What we are looking at is, once I get it into focus... Um, is one end of um, a portrait of the royal family, the Tudor royal family, Henry VIII and Jane Seymour, um, in the the royal collection at Windsor. It is a very long portrait. Um, It represents a covered arcade in the grounds of the original banqueting house in Whitehall, and you'll just be able to see the original building there. Um, At the either end of the paintings... Uh, the painting is um, a view through this colonnade here into the um, the very formal and rather heavily stylized um, gardens at Whitehall Palace. You can just see just a, a tiny glimpse um, of what is a, a fairly plain garden consisting perhaps of box hedges or yew hedges laid out in a decorative pattern. What we are looking at is a royal parterre, and parterre literally means on the ground. Now, there is a long, complicated development from the not-garden into the parterre, um, um, but a not-garden is essentially a sealed unit, um, designed to be um, viewed from above, um, from the principal dining rooms, the principal entertainment rooms of your grand house, so that people can actually look down and see all the design in one go. What you have here is a fairly um, grand example um, small brick walls topped with green and white wooden railings, green and white being the, um, the Tudor royal household colours. The problem is with the knot garden it is, it is that it's very flat. Um, it doesn't have a great deal of upward thrust. What Henry did to counter this very flat impression was to erect six-foot-high wooden poles, two of which you can see here, painted green, white and gold, each topped with a carved representation of one of his bearers of this coat of arms. I think that is the white greyhound of Richmond that you can actually see there. Um, Just a little glimpse, a fascinating glimpse into what is obviously a fairly extensive um, garden um, at uh, Whitehall Palace. We now come to um, a painting um, of about, I believe, about 1600, 1610, Um, by Peter Paul Rubens called The Artist and His Second Wife in Their Garden. And this is not so much um, um, an an image of just a purely decorative garden. This is a painting where we start to get messages coming through. Um, This is Peter Paul Rubens here himself. This is his second wife, Helene Fournier. Helene was only 16 
when Rubens married her. He was 45. She had, um, in terms of her background, made an absolutely brilliant social match. Her father was um, a mercer. He was a silk merchant um, in the town. Now, we see here... um, Illustrations of um, particular birds and animals, all of which have some kind of representation. Um, This was painted um, as a second wedding anniversary present for Helene and hung in the principal entertaining rooms in um, in, um, Rubens' house. On this side of the building, this side of the picture, we have the courtly um, and very aristocratic peacocks. On Helene's side of the on Helene's side of the picture, the birds are very much more workaday farmyard birds. We have a turkey here, um, we have some, some ducklings um, and a goose down here. Um, Rubens is actually putting Helene very much in her social place um, by dividing the birds up into aristocratic on his side and workaday on hers. What he is actually saying is, put one foot wrong, my dear, and back to the farmyard you shall go. Um, So this is a painting of a garden which is used to illustrate marital power. Um, It also illustrates Rubens's considerable financial wealth. You can see here on this side of the painting um, is a locked gate leading to yet another walled garden. You might just be able to make out that the flowers in this particular garden are all of one kind. They are tulips, um, a very rare and very glamorous flower, very much in demand in the Low Countries at the time um, this painting was put together. Rubens is actually saying to anybody who looks at this painting, I am so fabulously wealthy that I can have part of my garden specifically devoted to the care and the cultivation of the tulip. The tulip had arrived basically in the saddlebags of the Crusaders coming back from um, um, places like Arabia, Um, The word tulip itself is a corruption of the Moroccan word tulepa, which means turban. And you can imagine the kind of tulip-shaped turban of the sultans of those kind of countries. Um, The the tulip had done very well in the Low Countries because of the the very fertile soil. Um, It was realised that they did very well and in the 1630s, something very peculiar started to happen to everybody's tulips. Normally, solid-coloured tulips would um, suddenly break into patterns of different colours. A normally solid red tulip would suddenly become streaked with orange, perhaps. Or what you, if you were expecting um, a pure white um, tulip might actually come into flower streaked with plum purple. Um, what they didn't know, what the, the growers didn't know, was this was actually called a co- what is called a colour break caused by a virus being transmitted from plant to plant by aphids. No two colour breaks were the same and nobody could predict when it was going to happen. Tulips stopped becoming decorative flowers. They started to become a commodity. People began to um, put more and more money into um, the, the, what essentially became tulip futures, um, gambling, in effect, on what next year's most desirable colour break would be. 
Of course, fashion is a fickle mistress. Um, people found various ways around this. It was said that um, a good way to convince your neighbours that you were far more wealthy than you actually were was to buy six of the most fashionable tulips, plant them in your garden, and when they started to come up, back them with a slice of mirror so that when the tulips came up, it looked like you had 12. Um, if you didn't have the money to exchange for what became wildly expensive tulips. You traded your possessions as well. Um, And in 1636, a single bulb of the most violently fashionable flower, which was called Semper Augustus, which was um, a white tulip streaked with um, a wonderful, rich, um, raspberry pink red, um, changed hands for eight pigs, four oxen, 12 sheep, 24 tonnes of wheat, 48 tonnes of rye, two hogsheads of wine, four barrels of beer, two tonnes of butter, a tonne of cheese, a silver beaker, a suit of fine woolen clothing, a four-poster bed with mattress, curtains and bedding, and a rowing boat. Um, of course, every economist will tell you Um, especially if they work for Lehman Brothers or Royal Bank of Scotland, that what goes up must always come down. And on a cold February morning in um, 1637, the bottom completely fell out of the tulip market. By the end of the week, you couldn't give tulip bulbs away. Um, A very short period in horticultural history, which is often quoted... um, um, in you know, financial circles as the ultimate kind of mass hysteria over um, what was called tulip mania. Moving on, um, still in mainland Europe, this is um, a painting called The Lover Crowned by Jean-Honoré Fragonard. If you're an art buff, you will recognise Fragonard as the, the chap who painted the, the very famous Girl in the Swing in London's Wallace Collection. Um, this shows the kind of gardening associated um, with the French um, people in the 17th century. Um, very magnificent, very formal, very full of floral display. Um, if you've visited gardens um, like uh, Volovicon um, at Versailles, you will know that tucked away in amongst the um, the grand formal magnificence are little bosquets, little um, intimate gardens full of flowers, colour and, most importantly, peace and silence. There is obviously something um, untoward going on in this garden. If you see the little figure of Dan Cupid here, um, fast asleep, um, obviously... Let's get that back into focus. There is um, something going on here. I doubt very much whether these two young people are actually married. Um, There is obviously some kind of amorous dalliance going on, as I said, because Cupid is fast asleep. The focus horticulturally is this wonderful orange tree on the far right-hand side, um, beloved by the French kings because it was expensive, exotic, it gave flowers and fruit, and it could be topiarised. However, it didn't um, last too well in the northern European winters. Ways had to be developed of... um, of maintaining the orange trees, looking after them through the cold and wet northern European winters. A type of building was developed, a tall brick building with east-facing windows to catch the rising sun, with a pit underneath which would be um, filled with um, rotting uh, vegetation, with tanner's bark, anything that would compost down and give off heat. That would actually warm the floor from below, 
um, by convection, the warmth from the floor would filter into the air and it would actually preserve the orange trees throughout the winter. Because they were so often used to um, look after the orange trees and citrus fruits in general, they were termed orangeries or orangeries as we now call them. Um, very few of them um, in this country survive in anything like their, their, their normal state. They are generally adapted, as in places like at Kew Gardens, um, into the cafeteria or the restaurant or the bookshop, something like that, because they are light and airy. But they were the prototype of our modern greenhouses, our modern hothouses, more or less. We all think we know what the 18th century looks like. This is um, a painting of Charlecote Park. Um, now, where is Charlecote Park? I can't think offhand. Um, this is a painting which is in the, the care of the National Trust. As I said, we think we have a, an idea of what the 18th century actually looks like. You know, the kind of wonderful capability brown landscape, um, a sinuous lake, clumps of trees, um, the lawn coming right up to the mansion door. That is very much a style of gardening which didn't take hold with fashion until at least the, uh, the 1730s or the 1740s. Until about 1730, this was very much the, the very fashionable kind of layout which any self-respecting country gentleman would have around his country home um, and you can see it is very linear there are lots of style elements which have come from abroad which have come from uh, the the French and Italian ways of looking at gardens and having man dominate the landscape um, it is the landscape which is under the control of man in this type of picture hence all the straight lines, the unnaturally artificial look um, of the garden itself. You know, avenues of trees linking um, various points of the garden. Um, one way of deceiving people into thinking that you actually had um, a more extensive... Um, uh, a more extensive estate, was to extend your rows of trees as far as the horizon. You would put up together um, a sum of money with um, the neighbor, your neighbour on the other estate um, and um, give people the impression that your landscape actually extended far and away into the horizon. So we can see, you know, canals very obviously based on the Dutch designs, um, parterres, embroidered um, gardens here, the formal-looking kitchen garden off to the side on the stables there, completely artificial. But, as I said, that's how the 18th century very much looked until a chap by the name of Capability Brown arrived on the scene. Um, now, you can't really get away from the name of Capability Brown if you're studying garden history and garden design. This is very much more the type of image that we associate with the 18th century. This is um, a Turner painting um, called Malvern Hall, in Warwickshire, currently in the Tate Gallery in London. And when I say the Tate Gallery, I mean the building where um, pictures actually look like things, as opposed to, you know, pickled cows in formaldehyde and that kind of thing. Um, very much, you know, the quintessentially English 18th century look, so beloved um, um, by about 1750, very much a signature style 
of um, the English 18th century. Um, you know, here we have our, our lake, um, our herd of um, um, deer grazing in the park. The parkland goes right up to the front door, uh, expertly spaced um, clumps of trees, very much the type of um, landscape which would have been familiar throughout the last part of the 18th century and into the 19th. Um, Elizabeth, as they drove along, watched for the first appearance of Pemberley Woods, and when at length they turned in at the lodge, her spirits were in high flutter. The park was very large and contained a great variety of ground. Elizabeth's mind was too full for conversation, but she saw and admired every remarkable spot and point of view. They gradually ascended for half a mile, then found themselves at the top of a considerable eminence where the wood ceased, and the eye was instantly caught by Pemberley House, situated on the opposite side of the valley into which the road with some abruptness wound. It was a large, handsome stone building, standing well on rising ground and backed by a ridge of high woody hills. In front, a stream of some natural importance was swelled into greater, but without any artificial appearance. Its banks were neither formal nor falsely adorned. Elizabeth was delighted. She had never seen a place for which nature had done more, or where natural beauty had been so little counteracted by awkward taste. They were all of them warm in their admiration, and at that moment she felt to be mistress of Pemberley House might well be something. Of course, what she doesn't know is that any moment now Colin Firth is going to... I've been telling this joke for ten years and people still get it. Um, Colin Firth is going to rise dripping from the lake in front of uh, this house and she will be even more enamoured of the idea of being mistress of Pemberley House. Um, Just a, a final word about Capability Brown. He wasn't the first... English landscape designer, um, some dispute whether he was actually the best, but he was certainly the most prolific. He's known to have had a hand in some 350 to 400 landscaping designs um, of um, country states around the country. In fact, he had had to actually turn down a great many commissions. He was asked to redesign um, an estate in Southern Ireland, which he turned down very graciously by saying, my lord, I have not yet finished improving England. As we come into the Victorian period, we uh, meet a chap called Humphrey Repton, who took over the mantle of garden design from Capability Brown. Um, This is um, uh, two pages, two pages from the Humphrey Repton Red Book for... um, um, Wimpole Hall in Cambridgeshire. Um, You would not normally be able to see both these images at once. Mr Repton was a very good salesman. He had very little horticultural training, but he knew how to sell himself. He would invite himself to stay with various noblemen around the country, clutching under his arm a red leather Morocco-bound Um, book of designs for the landscape and they would become known as Mr Repton's Red Books. And they worked on a very simple prototype lift the flap pop-up procedure. This is the picture that is underneath. You wouldn't normally be able to see them, as I said, both at the same time. This is what you got. This is what 
the landscape at Wimpole Hall looks like before Mr Repton has unleashed his creative genius on it. Um, a little bit of a bland example, but most of his um, works are still owned by the National Trust. This is the only one that they would actually let me use. Um, in a lot of his before pictures, it is generally raining. Um, you know, um, there, the, there is a cow which has escaped from um, the farmyard and which is chasing the nursery maid, you know, hell for leather, um, across the field. You know, bands of brigands are roaming the ground. You know, it's a horrible day. Um, lift the flap up, and what you have is not so much um, a garden makeover, but a complete lifestyle makeover as well. Um, you know, now in the, in the picture underneath, the sun is shining, the cow is back in the farmyard, the, 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 uh, the robbers have been locked away, you know, and the daughter of the house is free to parade along uh, the newly installed decorative um, walk in front of the house. What Repton was advocating was the return of formality. Um, we'd had the 17th century formality all swept away by um, Brown and his followers, and now what we have is a return to, f- from, to f- the return to formality caused in part by the opening up of the world, the arrival in um, the British Isles of new plants from around the world, um, from places like South Africa and the Americas and the Canary Islands, new flowering plants which demanded a place in uh, um, full view of the house so they could be seen and appreciated properly. What we are seeing, as I said, is a return to formality. What Repton is advocating is the, the thinning out of the parkland to actually open up the prospect. You can actually see here that a ruined, tumble-down cottage has been restyled and turned into an artificial sham Gothic ruin um, to give your visitors a destination for picnics, somewhere to actually aim for. So, as I said, we have not so much a garden makeover as a complete lifestyle change, um, as, as advocated by Mr Repton. The Victorians gave us many things. Um, they gave us the penny post. They gave us the, uh, the railway systems. What they also gave us was the public park. And in the public park, they gave us carpet bedding. Um, this is um, a painting called A Summer's Day in Hyde Park by John Ritchie. shows Hyde Park a couple of years before 1851 when the Great Exhibition was built there. Um, On the kind of back foot of um, Repton, people began to look more closely at the decorative possibilities of the new plants. Um, Victorian England, very dirty, very um, smelly place with lots of atmospheric pollution. These new plants coming in from around the world didn't last very long. A way had to be found of protecting them from the atmosphere, forcing them into growth and replacing them very quickly. So essentially what we have is the arrival of the corporation glasshouse, which would be stuffed with cuttings and seedlings of um, the the new hardy geraniums, uh, the pelagoniums, the fuchsias, the ageritums, all those intensely coloured and vibrant bedding plants. Um, the planting records from Hyde Park show that in the year of Victoria's Golden Jubilee, the entire park was mass bedded out with French and African marigolds, some 186,500 individual plants were crammed into um, 
carpet beds in the middle of the park, literally to turn the whole park gold. I mean, I'm not a great fan of the bedding system. They were co- it was called carpet bedding because the plants would literally carpet the earth and you couldn't see the earth through them. I mean, can you imagine the smell of 187-odd thousand French and African marigolds? Not pleasant. Um, as we move towards the beginning of the 20th century, um, this is um, Monet's painting of his famous lily pond down at Giverny. Um, I always think there's something missing from um, this picture, and that's the words happy birthday written underneath. Um, you know, it's the kind of image which we associate, you know, it's safe, it's, you know, very chocolate boxy, it's the ideal thing for a greetings card or a calendar. But in terms of what in terms of the ways that gardens were being represented, Monet's water lily pond is not safe. It was a breakthrough. It was a real sea change. Monet and his fellow Impressionists were, were less concerned with the depiction of grand gardens, which is the majority of the gardens that we've looked at so far. They were not interested in the royal landscapes or the great estates of the, the rich people. They were interested in... Um, the gardens of normal people, um, and they were interested in the, the fleeting effects of light um, on water and foliage. Um, it's interesting, Monet suffered very badly from um, um, increasing astigmatism um, towards the end of his life. There is a theory currently circulating in the art world that Monet painted his gardens like this not for artistic effect, but because that's how he saw the world. Um, I have very short sight, and if I take off my glasses, everything which is more than about five and a half feet away turns into a kind of mishmash, blurred vision of colour rather than me being able to see specific outlines. It may be because Monet had very poor sight that that this is why he painted his pictures like that. Um, He became... um, increasingly um, poor-sighted towards the end of his life, became unable to see the blue and green end of the spectrum, um, was only able to see you know, strong reds, strong purples and very strong yellows, which is why his later paintings um, get more and more surreal, less like a garden than actually his visual impression of what he was actually seeing. Um, Here we have a London Underground advertising poster um, from 1908. Um, The soonest reached at any time, Golders Green. Um, Let's just focus that slightly, that's it. Um, Golders Green was very much a country crossroads until the London Underground Railway arrived in 1908. should have arrived in 1906, but there were leaves on the line, unfortunately. Um, it's a kind of halcyon image, you know, of a, a golden, glorious world all centred around um, this, this wonderful Lutchins-esque house and its very formal garden. The garden was... Um, employed in posters like this as a means of tempting the new middle classes, people like the bank clerks, the insurance brokers, who had spare money of their own, away from the noise and dirt of the Victorian and Edwardian inner cities, out into the new garden suburbs, as they were called. Um, Golders Green was one of the first special-built garden suburbs in the country, 
every house had its garden. And that fact was very much made the most of by the underground advertisers and the speculative builders, tempting people out of the noise and the smoke into a wonderful um, country, almost countryfied scene. Um, you can see private um, garden fashions change very much slower, it's changed very much faster than public fashions. Along the walk to the um, tube station, you can still see the remnants of the Victorian carpet bedding in its kind of island bed concentric circles. The focus of this wonderful garden is this immaculately kept lawn. The um, lawn mower had been invented in the 1830s by a textile engineer, Mr Budding, who was watching um, a machine shear the nap of some cloth one day when he suddenly realised that what he was watching was the answer to the problem of keeping your lawn um, nice and uh, tightly cut. Before the invention of Budding's um, lawnmower in 1830, there were two ways of cutting your lawn. You've got a scythe out, which is a very dangerous way of doing it, um, or, you know, you hide a flock of sheep. Um, the original Budding lawnmowers were very small machines. The blades were only, you know, eight or nine inches wide at the very most. Originally marketed um, as a healthy, useful and practical occupation for the lady of the house. Um, it wasn't until, you know, motorised lawnmowers um, and gadgets and things like fly mows appeared on the scene that you really get this link between men and their lawns. Um, the early 1830s up until the outbreak of World War I, perhaps, um, mowing the lawn was seen very much as a feminine occupation. I can see several gentlemen in the audience looking distinctly uncomfortable. Um, this painting is called Laggard Leaves by a chap very appropriately named Harry Bush in the Museum of London. Shows a typical, you know, back-to-back garden which you might find um, in any suburb, in any city um, in this country. You know, a very small, mean, bare garden. Only enough room, really, to put up the washing line and have the coal bunker um, tucked into the corner. No privacy overlooked by the windows of the people on the opposite side of of the alleyway at the back. Perhaps, you know, a mean little tree, a patch of grass. Not an awful lot um, of um, wonderful exotic planting schemes, very much a utilitarian space. Of course, what was going to happen to most of those gardens in the, the coming decades when war clouds gathered um, was this. Um, I admit that I had to cheat slightly. This is not a painting. This is, of course, a photograph of the famous Dig for Victory campaign credited with putting something like 30% of the nation's food directly onto the tables of England from the back gardens. Um, the Dig for Victory campaign was a joint effort between the Ministry of Agriculture and the Royal Horticultural Society. had originally been called the rather uninspiring Grow More Food from Your Garden campaign. Um, you know, really kind of not very inspiring, is it? There's a problem with that in that it got confused with the advertising for a brand of chemical fertiliser, which was called National Grow More. Um, the RHS, the Ministry of Agriculture, had to rethink, um, and it was called eventually in, I think, spring 1940, Dig for Victory. Um, simple, 
direct, it's a real clarion call, real propaganda. Um, you're left in no uncertain terms as to what you're actually being asked to do. Just quickly, once again, problem with the image? Left foot. Where is his right foot, we wonder? Um, I mean, I know some people do actually push the spade into the ground with their left foot. Um, but having, having tried to re- replicate the, the poster, a um, friend um, with a camera, I said, I'm going to push the spade into the floor with my left foot. I want to keep my right foot out of it. Having fallen off the spade several times, <laughs> I began to, find that there, began to think that there was something not quite right about this poster. If you will pardon the pun, I did some digging round in the archives at the Imperial War Museum in South London, who own all the original artwork, um, and they finally let it slip that this is not a real leg. Um, this is the leg of a shop window dummy which was bought for the occasion and dressed up and posed. Obviously, nobody associated with the campaign was a practical gardener um, because I found out to my cost that, you know, unless you are a member of the Royal Ballet and you do your gardening like that, not terribly practical. In terms of public recognition and public response, the Dig for Victory campaign, one of the most um, productive and well-known advertising campaigns ever. As I said, something like 30% of the nation's food was actually put onto its table. Just to finish off, because we are running short of time, um, and another underground advertising poster from the, um, the mid-1980s, The New Q by Tube, um, the Princess of Wales Conservatory nearest station, Kew Gardens. One of a series of... Um, paintings commissioned by the London Underground to subliminally suggest places that you might like to go at the weekend, you know, on your travel card to take your family. There is no direct marketing about it. It's just a suggestion, um, you know, of a garden filled with colour. What is interesting is that the picture actually um, incorporates two major themes of gardens um, in history. We have at the front, you know, this wonderful riotous cascade of red poppies and yellow daffodils and and, um, um, purple irises at the front. You know, almost a, a kind of medieval mix of uh, flowers springing up from the ground. At the back, we have the ridges and furrows of the Princess of Wales Conservatory, um, the idea of um, preservation of endangered parts of the world, you know, technology and gardening, microclimates, 20th century gardening. Um, it's kind of trying to sum up you know, everything that we think of about gardens and put it into one image, you know, the, the bucolic, the free and easy, and also the regulated. Um, it will take about 50 years before um, 21st century garden historians can look back onto the 20th century and quantify exactly um, what a late 20th century garden looks like. You know, if Alan Titchmarsh has got anything to do with it, it will all be purple decking. You know, there won't be any plants in it at all. 
Um, but we are now kind of redefining on a personal level um, what our gardens are all about. They are now, you know, spaces for personal enjoyment, personal relaxation, a bit of privacy, place to unwind at the end of a long day, place for the children to play. In fact, you know, our own interpretation of that first picture that we looked at, our own little patch of Eden just outside the, the front, just outside the back door. Um, gardening, gardening and garden history goes around in cycles. Everything that we have once seen, we will see again. Um, garden history is changing all the time. Fashion is a very fickle mistress. We now take elements from the past and incorporate them into our own particular gardens. Leaving you with that idea of the garden being our own little patch of Eden, um, the last... Um, verse of a poem which was drummed into me by my English teacher and many, many repetitions we had. You must learn this poem. Um, the last verse of um, The Glory of the Garden by Edward Ki- uh, uh, Rudyard Kipling. Um, I'm sure many of you also know it. The very last verse sums up everything that we've been looking at this evening, takes us back to the first garden of all. Adam was a gardener and the God who made him sees, that half a proper gardener's work is done upon his knees. So when your work is finished, you should wash your hands and pray for the glory of the garden. May it never pass away. Ladies and gentlemen, although I have not been down on my knees for the last um, three quarters of an hour, my work here is done.